searching for something once on the internet and I found uh, the Cyber Church, a website presenting itself as, quote, the first real church on the internet. And the Cyber Church, according to the website, is intended for believers in Christ who are interested in an online connection with other believers in the context of church fellowship. The website goes on to say the cyber church has members, 700 plus from around the world, just like a local church. Part of the ultimate purpose of the cyber church is, quote, providing fellowship and church participation for those who cannot easily do so in a local church. Farther down the page is this announcement. We invite cyber church members to have interpersonal contact with the ministers and counselors who are on the church staff. And how would the members have this interpersonal contact with the church staff? You click on an adjoining link which reads, visit your members and staff. Click here. Their application for membership says this, remember the cyber church membership is intended for believers in Christ who are interested in worship, fellowship, Bible study, and serving Jesus Christ. And they offer what they call live worship in the member area every Sunday night, Saturday night at 10 p.m., which is an interesting time for worship. Now, before you shake your head and, you know, wonder what sort of strange group this is, and, you know, well, Don, you can find anything on the Internet, the, cyber, the website is very clear. The Cyber Church is part of, and it names the Southern Baptist Church. It's adopted the very conservative year 2000 Baptist faith and message as its doctrinal statement. Paul Harvey used to say, page two. I have in my possession an issue of USA Today, which carried a full page story. That's a big story. They devote a whole page of the paper to one story toward a trend what are called farm vacations. And it's sort of uh, like a farm version of a western dude ranch where city, sickers, uh, city slickers pay to uh, play farmer for a day or more. And they stay in the farmhouse like a bed and breakfast arrangement and work on the farm. And the article noted that one of the concerns for some people would be privacy since they're staying in someone's home and sharing bathrooms. I was a little worried at first about sharing a bathroom admits Daniel's mother, Amy, but it worked out fine. Staying in close quarters, in fact, has its upsides, she says. Over their two-night two -night stay, she says they bonded with the other guests. You know what the best part of the trip was? Just meeting everybody and hanging out. I feel like I have a new extended family. Page three. There's a scene in the 1985 movie, Back to the Future, where the lead character played there by Michael J. Fox is first transported back to uh, the time when his father was a teenager like himself. If you're not familiar with the movie, this time travel involved, and Michael J. Fox is a teenager in the 1980s, and he goes back to the 1950s to the same town that he's living in as a teenager, but to the same town back in the 1950s when his parents were teenagers in that same town. And he arrives on the, the court square and he looks around and 
a number of things are very familiar to him, even though he's seeing them 30 years earlier. The courthouse looks pretty much the same, except the clock is working. Uh, a number of places look the same. He looks over here and sees the Texaco station. And a car pulls in, and ding, ding, and as it does, these four uniformed attendants come running out of the gas station. And one of them starts gassing up the car, and one is washing the windows, and one is checking the oil, and the other's checking the tires. And he's like, who are these people? Well, I can still remember places like that. But in my small town, usually it was one man, maybe two men, who came out. But what we still had was this. We bought gasoline from people. People we knew. My dad never said, son, go down to the Esso station, and I'm dating myself there, and gas up the car. He said, son, go down to Lonzo Beard's and gas up the car. He never said, son, go down to the Phillips 66 station, put gas in the car. He said, son, go down to Wendell Stovall's and put gas in the car. We bought gasoline from people people we knew and then the unthinkable happened what was that self-serve I remember in my little town when self-serve first came to town it was a, a small chain of gas stations called HEP yourself H-E-P hyphen U-R hyphen S-E-F HEP yourself and it was out on the edge of town, as these tended to be, in kind of a gravel lot with a couple of above-ground tanks and a small trailer. And it was kind of a seedy-looking outfit to begin with, you know? But you'd save a couple of cents on a gallon of gas, which is a lot when that means it's 16 cents a gallon rather than 18 cents a gallon. But it began to catch on. And it then, as many of you cannot remember anything but self-serve gas, but you have to realize that in a day when you bought gasoline from people, the idea of self-pumping your own gas then was as unthinkable as doing your own dentistry would be today. It never, ever crossed your mind to pump your own gas. That's what Gomer Pyle did, right, when you pulled in the gas station in Mayberry. That's, you know, that, that's, that was someone's occupation. Then things changed, and we started going up to this little glass-enclosed island out there, somewhere between the pumps. But, or, I mean, when I did pay at the pump, what I forgot to say is I would go inside and pay Wendell Stovall, go inside and pay Lonzo Beard, get a pack of clove or tea berry gum, do the tea berry shuffle, for those of you who remember that, and come back to the car. Then we stopped going inside. There's a little glass-enclosed island out there. Or they, they put on the front of the gas station this, this thick glass with a little speaker thing in it, this incomprehensible little speaker system where you tried to talk to somebody like this 
and Neil Armstrong on the moon talking to Chris Kraft in Houston through my black and white television set was easier to understand than trying to talk to this guy here three feet away. But this little drawer came out and I, you put your money in the, in the drawer and this drawer would withdraw and so would you. And you didn't see or talk to anybody except uh, mediated by glass and electronics. Now what do we do? You swipe the card at the pump. And I don't even know if there's anybody in there. And if there is, they don't know any more about gas or cars than I do. And I've heard that in California, they've been test marketing a situation sort of like a robo car wash. You don't even get out of the car. The robo gizmo knows how to unscrew the gas cap and it inserts a nozzle. All you do is lower the window and swipe the card. And I would argue that all of life is moving more and more like that not less like that, right? All of us buy more and more over the internet. So it used to be we moved to ordering it over the phone, now we order it over the internet. More and more I'm paying for things with my phone. My next uh, Apple computer and the next iteration of their operating system will have where you can use Apple Pay on your computer. I don't have to enter in my computer my credit card number, I can just kind of swipe on something on the touchpad there and it's a more secure thing and I pay for things and um, often they're here the next day, sometimes even delivery on Sunday. So I didn't ask for that, but it paid for something Saturday night over the internet, shows up Sunday afternoon at my house. More and more is like that, not less like that. And the mobility and pace of life which demand this and the technology which makes it possible have resulted in two trends we would like to separate but we can't. They are married together. One trend is an efficiency which has made us the most productive and wealthiest nation in the history of the world. But the corresponding trend is inevitably an impoverishment of relationships. And so while the benefits of technology make the luxury, if you will, and the efficiency of membership in a cyber church possible, the result is people will take vacations to work on farms where otherwise their kids would never see animals or see where food comes from or see things grow and we'll share bathrooms with strangers on our vacation just for the enjoyment of having a couple of days to be able to sit on a front porch swing and talk to somebody face to face. One man who's uh, described our problem this way, our problem is progress, he says. Richard A. Swenson, whose book Margin first edition came out the same time that little green and black book you showed last night came out, same publisher, uh, medical doctor in uh, Wisconsin, since come out with a revised edition. It's one of only two books besides the Bible I've read four times, a book called Margin by Richard A. Swinson. And he says our problem is progress, which he describes as getting more and more of everything faster and faster. And with some things, 
it's good. And with many things, it's very good up to a point. But there comes a point where it ceases being good and it starts being bad. If you're literally dying of thirst and you're crawling on hands and knees and you come across a garden hose and it's just trickling water and you have to hold it up for the water to trickle down in your tongue, more is better. Give me more. That's good. But if it starts coming out like a fire hose, it's actually bad. It's too much. And he argues and shows a lot of charts and statistics that it's that way with almost everything. Many of you can remember when email first came out. I thought, this is great. I can send a message to whomever I want whenever I want to. And there's a point in which that's good. As the pastor and I were setting up this meeting, he could send an email early in the morning because he's an early riser and I could respond to it way after midnight because I'm an early riser trapped in a night owl's body. And, you know, we didn't have to be on the phone at the same time to make all this happen. This is great. I can respond whenever I want. I can send an email to whomever I want whenever I want, but quickly I discovered that also meant everyone in the world can send me an email too when they want, and some days they do. So what started out as a good thing became a bad thing. I want to sometimes put them, you know, what's your occupation? I am a full-time email responder. progress in in so many areas in every area it's great for a while but then it becomes too much and it becomes actually a burden we are rich in possessions but poor in relationships relationships to family to neighbors to land and place to community and of course to church and the result of all this is we have become increasingly efficient at leading meaningless lives increasingly efficient at leading meaningless lives. We can do more and more, faster and faster than any generation in history. We may have more time and labor-saving devices than any generation in history, more suicides, more stress-related illnesses than any generation in history. There's something wrong with that picture. If you have a certain job to do, you have to produce X every workday, but technology comes along and makes it possible for you to produce 2x. Do they say, well, good, we'll give you half a day off every day now. No, the pressure increases. You have to produce 2x every day now. And so if something goes wrong, you can fall behind faster than ever before. So our technology helps us, but it results in more, often more stress. I'm the one with all the time and labor-saving devices, but it was my parent, grandparents who had the ability somehow to sit on the front porch and talk to people while they snapped beans and, and did other things. You know, they had, my, they had to do everything by hand, it seems like. And yet they are the ones who seem to have time for people. We have more time and labor-saving devices, but more stress stress-related diseases, increasingly efficient at leading meaningless lives. God has created us with a craving for meaningful relationships, for community. 
It's part of being made in the image of God. In the triune Godhead, there are relationships. One God, three persons. The Father, relationship with the Son, the Son with the Spirit, and so forth, and made in his image. It's ingrained within us a desire for meaningful relationships. And much of this God-created fulfillment for this craving is experienced, I believe, in spiritual disciplines of life together in the local church. That is how God has intended for so much of this God-created craving to be satisfied, and thus it will be forever and ever. But the spiritual disciplines of life together in a local church is the God-intended fulfillment for these God-given cravings. You see them even in unconverted people where you will see them talk about the desire for community. And you see it expressed in, in, in modern ways. I mean, most of us can remember when there was no Starbucks. Now there are places, I've seen them, where they are literally catty-corner from each other on an intersection. And people will drive even significant different distances early in the morning to pay a significant sum of money sometimes why because it's the only place they can sit down and talk to somebody face to face the technology and the mobility and the pace of life has made life so complex people sit and work on emails or can talk on their phone while they eat their breakfast at the ATM and we can do more and more of everything faster and faster but where are the places people can actually sit and talk to somebody? Well, one of the most common places for that is a coffee shop, a place like Starbucks, which as I acknowledge, most of us can remember when they didn't exist. Well, I believe that these, these spiritual disciplines, these corporate, these congregational disciplines are encapsulated in the familiar commands of Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 you'll turn there so as you're doing I've used the term spiritual discipline several times let me clarify that there are personal spiritual disciplines those you practice alone with God and there are interpersonal or corporate or congregational spiritual disciplines those we practice with other Christians so, for example, we are to pray alone, aren't we? Jesus said, when you pray, go into your inner room, close the door. Your Father who sees in secret will hear you. But the Bible also teaches we're to pray with the church. That's an interpersonal, corporate, congregational spiritual discipline. We are to get in the Bible and read it, meditate on Scripture all alone. That's a personal spiritual discipline. But we're also to do what we're doing right now. We're to gather with the church to hear the Bible read preached, taught. We are to worship God all alone. We're also to do as we'll do in the morning, worship him with his people. Personal spiritual disciplines, those we practice privately, and interpersonal spiritual disciplines, those we practice together. And we all need both because, number one, the Bible commands both. And second, Jesus, our example of walking with God, practiced both. At least five times in the Gospels, we're told Jesus got alone to pray. 
Therefore, in following his example, we need to do the same. But Dr. Luke tells us in chapter 4 of his gospel, as his custom was, he was in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now, don't you think that if there's anyone who ever had a pass in going to church, it would be Jesus? I mean, he's got this messianic ministry to fulfill, all this teaching to do, all these people to heal. He knew he had a very short time to do it. But once a week, he would pull aside from that and sit and listen to some dusty old rabbi preach what must have been to him a boring sermon. I think only a preacher can fully understand what I mean when I say Jesus must have often sat there thinking, boy, I could do better than that. But he was there every Sabbath day because then, under the Old Covenant, the Sabbath, every Saturday, Jesus was there. Why would he do that? Because it was the appointed time for the people of God to gather. And Jesus said, those are my people. I want to be numbered among them. I don't want it to be said, oh, you're the Messiah, huh? Now, how come it is every time it's the appointed time for the people of God to gather, you're out there doing your own thing instead of with God's people? What's the point there? Jesus practiced personal spiritual disciplines alone with God. Even Jesus practiced interpersonal spiritual disciplines. So regardless of whether you like to be alone or you're energized more by people and you don't like to be alone, the Bible requires both. There are some people who say, you know, I, I just I get more out of my devotional time than I usually do at church. Uh, I really enjoy being alone. I, I've just, I'm energized by solitude and being able to focus on these sorts of things, and I don't really need that ungodly half-committed bunch down at the church. They only slow me down anyway. But people who come out on a Friday night and a Saturday morning, something at the church probably would lean a little more the other direction. The people who would say, you know, if I'm at the church pretty much every time the doors are open, and I am, and if I profit from that, as I do, I'm sure that in the long run, that will compensate for the lack of a personal devotional life. No, it won't. There are experiences with God you will only get alone with God. There are experiences with God you will only get through his people. And we all need both, even though our personalities may tend a little more one way or the other. You like to be alone or you don't like to be alone. We all need both. And most conferences I do are about personal spiritual disciplines. And the book the pastor held up last night, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. Those, that's about personal spiritual disciplines. Most conferences I do are on the two most important ones, the intake of the word of God and prayer. But he also held up a book last night, Spiritual Disciplines Within the Church, those things we do together that help us experience God and grow in grace. And that, that's kind of the context for when I say that now we're talking about the, per, the interpersonal spiritual disciplines because God has planted within us this, this desire for meaningful relationships even in the triune Godhead, their relationships. So in the image of God, we crave meaningful relationships. And I'm saying that I believe most of the God-intended fulfillment for that happens in our experience of the interpersonal spiritual disciplines with the local church. And I think all of those disciplines are kind of encapsulated in this passage, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us consider... How 
to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting or not forsaking to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day, the day of the Lord's return, drawing near. Let's... Um, Let me read this in the, in the larger context, and I want to call your attention um, three terms here, one at the beginning of verse 22, 23, and 24. But the paragraph begins in verse 19. So, um, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, Drawing on the parallel of, of the temple, the tabernacle, you go in to the very holy of holies, the very back where the Ark of the Covenant was through this thick veil. Well, when Jesus died, the veil was rent in two. Now, by faith in Christ, we can go to the inner places by a new and living way that he, Jesus, opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, first thing I want you to emphasize, verse 22, let us... Because of these things, let us do this. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Verse 26, and let us do one more thing. Consider how to stimulate or uh, stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as a habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So there, there's a theological foundation he lays, and as a result of that, he says, 22, 23, and 24, let us do three things. Verse 22, let us. Verse 23, let us. Verse 24, let us. You've got three heads of let us. I'm sorry, but you'll remember that. Let us, let us, let us. That's how you can distinguish this here. And this is all about a phrase I'm going to use several times now, a word I'm going to use, a Greek, a Greek word, koinonia. As one of your seminary professors, you know I'm duty-bound to mention Greek at least once while I'm here. But the reason I'm going to is because if I say the English word translated koinonia, I think you get... The wrong picture will come into your head. What is the English word that we typically use to translate the Greek word koinonia? Yeah, I usually, many of you know the word koinonia. It's translated fellowship. But when I say fellowship, the picture that comes into your head, I believe in most cases, is not fellowship. It's something else. And we'll distinguish those two in a moment. We're going to talk about koinonia. And I believe koinonia is God's answer to many of our God-given desires for satisfying relationships. But since newer translations, uh, many of us are, are familiar with this term meeting together. Um, a lot of us grew up with translations that use the term let's not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Uh, we don't talk like that 
and most of the newer translations like the ESV in front of you talk about meet together or don't give up meeting together. That's the way I'm going to use it this morning. But the secret here is not just let's meet together a lot. Let's come back Sunday night twice. And other times during the week. That, that alone is not what's being spoken of here. It's meeting together in certain ways. What's being exhorted here is don't just get Christians in the same room. But rather it's talking about meeting together in ways whereby we experience the riches of Christian community. So that's a phrase that begins every one of the major points on your outline. So get familiar to hearing that. We're talking about meeting together in ways whereby we experience the riches of Christian community. And first of all, this is based upon the riches of what we share in Jesus. So what I'm exhorting us to do, to meet together, not just meet more often, not just get in the same room, but the secret is meeting together in certain ways. What kind of ways? Ways whereby we experience the riches of Christian community. This is not just based on tips and tricks and sociological ideas, methods. Rather, it's based first of all upon the riches of what we share in Jesus. Now before we get into some of the specifics of this section here in chapter 10, it's important to remember, as always is, the context. Who was this written to? Who was the book of Hebrews written to? Jewish Christians. People who had grown up Jewish, like Saul of Tarsus, who were converted and became Christians. But these Hebrew Christians had come under persecution. And like everyone, they didn't like it. They wanted to escape from that. I mean, it, it was difficult. Hebrews talks about they, they would, uh, uh, some people were thrown in prison. And if they went to visit their brothers or sisters in Christ in prison, they'd say, oh, you're one of them? Well, you just go in there too. Or they would go to church and they'd come home and their houses had been ransacked and their property plundered. And no one wants that. And so they began to think, maybe we should just revert to Judaism and we wouldn't be persecuted then. Is that okay? Kind of like we, we come out of Judaism, we get saved, but then we go back into it to be safe? Can we still be Christians and, and practice Judaism? Kind of fly under the radar and still get to know God, still get to go to heaven, but, but we pretend like our real identity is Jewish? Maybe just give it up altogether and just become Jews again, would God understand? After all, Christianity came out of Judaism, so maybe it's not such a bad thing to, to go back into that. Is it worth it to follow Christ is what they're wondering. So in this passage, starting in Hebrews, well, really at the end of chapter 9, verse 23, all the way up to chapter 10, verse 10, the theme here is that Jesus is a better sacrifice because they're thinking about going back to Judaism, including the, the animal sacrifices they offered before. And who did that? Priests, Jewish priests. They were familiar with this. They knew these priests. Their kids played with their kids. They lived down the street in the Jewish neighborhood. So they were thinking about going back to Judaism, 
which would have meant offering up these sacrifices that they used to have the priests do for them and going back under the authority of these priests. But here they're reminded, no, no, no. You don't want those sacrifices. Jesus is a better sacrifice. His blood sacrifice offered once is a better and much more effective method than the animal sacrifices of Judaism. As the writer reminds them in chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, for it is impossible, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, O God, but a body you have prepared for me, Jesus said. God doesn't want sacrifices and grain offerings and these kinds of things that were all pointing to Christ. So he gave his son a body and sent him into the world. And then, therefore, we read in verse 10, and by that, by the body of Jesus, the old King James used to say famously, by the which will, by the which will, by that, by the body of Jesus, will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Blood sacrifices of the Jews can't do that. They have to be offered again and again and again and again. Why? Because they don't take away sins. So Jesus is a better sacrifice, they are told. Why would you go back? But these, these fearful and potentially apostate Hebrews... We're not only reminded Jesus is a better sacrifice, but Jesus is a better priest than the Jewish priest they would be going back to because their sacrifices don't take away sins. That's the message of verses 11 through 18. So Jesus is not only the perfect sacrifice, he is the perfect priest who offers the perfect sacrifice. See the picture? He is the priest. He is the sacrifice being offered by the priest. Verse 11, every priest, these Jewish priests now, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Why do you want to go back to that? But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, signifying what? He's finished, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet, till his return. For by a single offering on the cross, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with him after those days, declares the Lord. I love this verse. I will put my laws on their hearts. I will write them on their minds. It's no longer on stone external to us. Do this and you will live. He has put his laws in our minds and in our hearts so that we want to keep them. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Once you have come to Christ, that sacrifice has been offered once for all, 
and there's no more need for sacrifices. There's no more need, I would submit, for the representing of the sacrifice of Christ in a mass ceremony. At the mass, the blood of Christ is, is represented, is the term. Every time they have the mass, they're representing the sacrifice of Christ. To me, that is completely contrary to what this verse teaches. It doesn't need to be represented. It is offered it was offered once for all, takes away sins, perfecting those who have been, to whom that sacrifice has been applied. And where there's forgiveness of sins, you don't need any more sacrifices. So the author is saying here, if you've come to Christ, why would you go back to a system that doesn't work? All of those sacrifices are being, were foreshadowing the sacrifice of Christ, but they had to keep being offered because those priests weren't perfect, and the sacrifice wasn't perfect. But the perfect sacrifice came, and it was offered, and it is finished, Jesus says. And so we don't need any more sacrifices. Besides, they couldn't take away sins anyway. Why in the world would you want to go back to them? So based on all of that, that's the foundation for what he's going to tell them to do now. Jesus is the better sacrifice, and he's the better priest who offers the sacrifice. We finally get to the application. The three commands of verses 22 and 24, the three heads of lettuce. Verse 22. Well, go back to 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... By a new and living way, he opened through the curtain that is his flesh. When he died on the cross, you remember the veil of the curtain was torn, this inches thick fabric of the veil, shutting out people from the presence of God. Only the high priest could go, and he could go only once a year, and only after a week's preparation with blood and so forth would he come in. But when Jesus died, the veil of the temple was torn how? Top to bottom by the invisible hand of God. And now anybody can come in. Anybody can come in if they come through the veil. What is the veil? The flesh, the body of Jesus we've seen here. The body of Jesus. You come through Jesus, you can come right into the presence of God by what he has done. So, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest, again, Jesus, over the house of God, I want you to do three things, he says. Number one, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Everybody's washed with pure water. Why would the author tell this audience, this people, draw near in full assurance of faith? Why would he tell them draw near? What were they thinking about doing? Drawing away. You know, let's go back to Judaism. Let's kind of forget Christianity because we don't want to be persecuted. Let's just pull away from that and go back to Judaism. No, draw near. Draw near. And verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our faith, of our hope, without wavering. Why did he tell them this? They were wavering, right? They were wavering. Are we going to remain professing Christians or are we going to say, no, no, we're Jews now? We're going to give up our confession of faith? And he says, no, no, hold fast. Hold fast the confession of our faith, 
our hope without wavering, for he promised is faithful. And here's the one we're going to focus on the rest of the morning. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Who, who's he talking about there? Some of the people in this Jew, Jewish Christian group. Some of them were already in the habit of not meeting together. Why? Persecution. If they show up at church, they might get arrested. If they show up at church when they get home, not only is the roast not in the oven anymore, nothing else is in the house. They've ransacked the house. But encourage one another and all the more. Do this all the more as you see the day of the Lord's return drawing near. He's saying to them, you're thinking about pulling away? That's exactly the wrong thing to do. This is the time you need to draw near. And when you draw near, and when you, the focus we have now, 24 and 25, when you consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, by, when you meet together, that will put steel in your backbone. That will give you what you need to stay faithful. But it will happen when you meet together. Something will happen when you meet together. Not just get in the same room, not just get together and share your fears, but when you meet together in certain ways, something happens. God works in ways he doesn't at any other time, and that will supply what you need at this time. So, All of these things he told them to do. And all that we're going to say today about koinonia and the benefits of meeting together in certain ways. The, this is not just, hey, I've got, I've got the latest sociological research that tells us how to really benefit from other people. No, no. We share something in Jesus. That's the foundation of all of this. This great high priest has made the perfect sacrifice that unites us in unique and unusual ways. Therefore, there's something that can flow because of that bond we have together. That is the work of God. God will do something in our midst that he won't do when you're alone with him. Now, the converse is true. Their experiences with God, you will only get alone with God. You'll never get in the most glorious worship services or fellowship. But the same is also true. Their experiences with God, you will never get except with his people. There are things you will learn. There, is, there are aspects of the love of God you will feel. There are encouragements you will only get when God does it through his people. You cut yourself off from that. Or you fail to meet in certain ways, you won't experience God in those ways. And so much of what God intends to give you and bless you and help you with is dependent upon your being here and all of you meeting together in certain ways. It's based upon what we share in Jesus. And so it, it's also important to realize here, it's based on what we share in Jesus. It's not just truths that we needed. It wasn't just a message that we needed.
from God. He sent his son in a body. Now think about this. You have an omnipotent God who has a message to give to the world. What are some of the ways an omnipotent God might have communicated his message? He could have written it in the sky. He could have used the calligraphy of the clouds, right? Has he ever used the cloud to speak? Yeah. The pillar in the cloud in Exodus. There was time he came in the cloud, you know, at, at the transfiguration and in, in, in another time. Similar to the clouds, what else might he have used in the sky? Stars. He, you know, there are trillions and trillions of stars. We talked about this last night, right? All the galaxies and so forth. He could, he could, have, put in the, he could have put the gospel in the, the language of every tongue and tribe and nation in the world, in, in the stars. Has he ever used a star before to communicate? Yeah, Bethlehem. But he didn't do that, did he? Someone else said angels, right? He could have sent the gospel by angelic express, again, to every tongue, tribe, and nation people. Has he ever used angels to communicate to us? Well, yeah, many times in the Bible. What else? You have an omnipotent God. He can do anything, and he has a message to give us. What might he have done? He might have just talked to us through each individual mind. And he's done that. That's not how he chose to give his primary message to the world. What else might he have done? He could have, you know, written on the wall of every house, of every place. He ever written on a wall before? Yeah, the hand of Belshazzar's feast. But he didn't do that. What else might he have done? Omnipotent, he could do anything to communicate his message. What, what he might he have done? Just speak out loud. Hey! You in Avon Park, Florida, listen up. Has he ever spoken with a voice from heaven before? Yeah. Once, and some thought it thundered, you know. And transfiguration, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He could have done that, leaned over and shouted in, the, in every language under heaven. But he chose not to do that. Can you think of anything else? Rainbow? Yeah, he's done that. How about animals? Since there are animals all over the world, he could have communicated his message to animals. <laughs> Has he ever done anything like that? Yes. But he didn't do that. For reasons we don't know. Because you've got to realize that he was, he's... One sense you would say that would have been easier to communicate it to everyone immediately, faster. But instead, as he says here in Hebrews, but a body you have given me. He came in a body. Once again, he didn't just send a message. He could have shouted from heaven, written in the sky, but rather the incarnation of Jesus is important for so many ways that he came in a body and that has implications not only for our salvation but for our edification we
we don't just need messages. The pastor could tweet or email his sermons to everybody. He could sit at home, record them on his computer, and play them on the screen. But there is a huge difference when he is delivering it in person. And that's what Jesus was. The message, the word of God in flesh. The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And I'm saying that has implications for your experiencing God in this room and with one another. So all these things we're going to talk about in terms of koinonia is based upon these things. What we share in Jesus. The life of Christ flows through his body. I mean, he, he said in John 15, right? I'm the vine, you are the branches. The life of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit flows through Christ, through his body. This is the body of Christ. You want to experience God, you've got to be in the body. And to experience him through his body usually involves your body being in the same room with in the physical presence of other bodies, and otherwise you will be missing something. If Jesus were to bodily appear somewhere on this world today, would you rather be there and see it in person or on television? Yeah, in person. I mean, you'd be missing something, right? I mean, you'd rather see it on a TV than not at all. But it wouldn't be the same, would it? And the same is true with experiencing God through the riches of Koinonia and what he does with his people. All right, so that is the foundation here. When we come back, we're going to talk about meeting together in ways whereby we experience the riches of Christian community, how this stimulates us to love and good deeds, being real Christians.